everybody, and welcome to a weekend review edition of the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell. Joining me today, as ever, is a man who loves signing up for new streaming services and then trying to figure them out on the fly. It's Ryan Bailey. Hello, Ryan. Hello, TT. I had to have an extra couple of hours in bed this morning just to recover from switching from one game to another and trying to find out where games were being displayed. And, to, you know, my, my, you know, the bank account had a real workout from an extra subscription. <laughs> Wonderful stuff. Aren't we all happy about this situation? I know I am. I'm delighted. All right. So let's start with Peacock for a moment. And I want to take it in like a slightly different direction, which is I, too, did not love the kind of switch, trying to figure it out on the fly, uh, being told how great Peacock was by Peacock while myself, like, not being able to find games and instead watching golf. Uh, <laughs> like, is this, though, are we complaining about a service that is still better than what, like, maybe is available in England, for example? Or is it the case that it is really that much worse? Like, I basically, I can't tell if this is a first-world problem uh, of the highest order or a first-world order, a first-world problem that is just sort of very frustrating. So I do have to kind of check myself before I wreck myself, if I may use that phrase. You may, you uh, may. But thank you. Because uh, in the UK, you know, it's quite expensive to watch the Premier League. You have to have Sky Sports and BT Sports subscriptions to do so. And you don't get as many games as you do here. We get every game if we mm. want to. That is not an option in the UK. And there's no three o'clock kickoffs and there's no watching all the rest of the three o'clock kickoffs, blah, blah, blah. So we are lucky in that respect. But it smarts a little bit, Taylor, when NBC have been so good and the coverage has been so good yeah. after, what is it, seven or eight years now? It's been tremendous. No, it's not been that long, has it? Was it six years? Eh. I don't even know. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, time, has, time is a flat circle. It's all fine. Don't worry about time it. Time is a flat circle indeed. Um, so that's, that's all good. NBC have been great. But when they spring this on us, I was thinking it was kind of going to be a replacement for NBC Gold. NBC Gold being yeah. your place for overflow games. Games that were on simultaneously with the broadcast slots. But what they've done is I pay $60 for my cable subscription, which I only use for soccer, I might mm-hmm. add. Our household does not watch any other kind of cable. We just watch the soccer. I, I engaged in a contract with NBC when I did that. I'm going to buy this cable package so I can watch these Premier League games. Oh, no, you're not, Ryan. You're <laughs> not going to do that because eight of those games are going to be on our new subscription service. And you know what? You're not going to be able to see those on all of your devices because we don't have smart TV apps. We don't have Roku yet. So basically... You've got a very small window and very small opportunity to watch these games, and we're charging you for something you were already paying for. So that's what I have the gripe with. I, I'm, I'm not happy with the delivery of the service, the yeah. way that um, you know, the, the way that it's not working across all all devices, and I'm not happy with being charged for it, for it once again. And it just feels very clunky. And even even when one game finishes, say your, your 7:30 game finishes, and then on Peacock it just stops. I'd like the yep. feed to continue into the next game. If it wouldn't be hard to do that, surely. No, and that's even what it used li- to do. NBC Sports yeah. Gold used to do that, or NBC Sports the app would do that. You'd keep getting the the studio show until the next game. Right. I share your frustration on that one. That was just a bit of a, a, a not very good from a user experience. And I don't know. I think that NBC have worked up a lot of goodwill in this country over the last few mm-hmm. years. And they've kind of ruined it a lot with this implementation. And if they are to be charged with growing the sport in this country, and they've done a tremendous job of doing so, they've taken backward steps with this. Yeah, I, I agree with you entirely. And I'm really glad that you brought up Roku for a moment because... 
I, I, like this is how scattered my brain is sometimes. I knew there was a really big thing that was frustrating to me about the switch to Peacock, aside from, oh, the feed cuts off or it's kind of difficult to figure out like what's going to be on there and when and how to navigate to it. But the Roku thing was a major issue for me because that is how I watch games when I'm streaming them to the TV. Yeah. And to not be able to do that because they've just signed an agreement with Roku, but it hasn't been yet made official. So they don't quite know how it's going to be delivered. Like, that is all well and good. But I think to your point, then, it's another obstacle. It's another hurdle at a time when I'm being asked to pay for a thing when the rollout isn't really complete. It is genuinely the first time I felt like a lot of times when we get these new streaming services, there's this vibe of like, it's the best thing. Like, trust us. It's going to be so great. You're going to be able to do this. You couldn't get this before. Now you have access to this. And this is the first time that I wondered... As with so many things from a commercial standpoint, are we going to eventually just move towards a, like, just suck it up and deal with it because this is what it's going to be? Like, it's just yeah. like, yeah, we know you don't like it, but, like, grin and bear it because this is the service we're using. Like, it didn't feel like the necessary bells and whistles were there. It felt like they were probably going to be there, like, six months from now, TBD, check back with us, but still go ahead and pay for it because we put eight of the ten games on the service. Maybe that's going to change. Maybe it will be the overflow site going forward, but even then, you've asked people to sign up for it i think it has not i'm with you it has not been handled as efficiently or effectively as i think it certainly could have been yeah and uh, one other thing i've noticed is i don't know if you saw this but during halftime and stuff the advertising is for other sort of peacock shows Mm -hmm. many of which the majority of which it appears are british shows which they've taken Uh, obviously from sky yeah uh, in the nbc uh, comcast or whatever now own sky Mm mm-hmm so that feels a bit penny-pinching. Like, oh, we've got this new app. We're just going to fill it with content that we kind of got from abroad for cheap yeah. uh, from our company we just bought. And the the main thing that annoyed me, watching the Chelsea-Liverpool game, and it, it's been noticeable elsewhere, Taylor, is that if you follow the game on Twitter, you're seeing the incidents on Twitter about two minutes before they happen on Peacock. Yeah. The, the delay is significant on it. And it yeah. was weird watching it because, you know... I know, I know what the Liverpool goal is going to happen a couple of minutes before it happens. And then I see Liverpool Taylor wearing these shirts that they're wearing at the moment, where it has kind of a V-neck on the back. Mm-hmm. So it looks like they're running backwards. So all I could think of is, <laughs> am I in real life tenant right now? Because I already know what's going to happen. I'm seeing things in reverse. It was, it was very confusing. Yeah, I mean, I forgot about the delay because I think I, I, I sent a snarky tweet about Fulham of like, like, uh, the commentator after uh, I think Leeds went ahead three to one was like, can they pull one back? And I think I tweeted out like, uh, the, the narrator, they couldn't. And then I, I saw all of these like, oh, Fulham, get one back. And I was like, great. Thanks, stream. That's really helpful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that made me feel foolish. That's probably my own doing, but I'm with you on the delay as well. So we hope that improves. Um, I personally hope Manchester United improve. We're going to talk about them later, but we're going to start Woo! with Chelsea's 2-0 loss to Liverpool. Ryan, where would you like to start? Is it with a little bit of humble pie, a little bit of crow? Are you eating crow yet? How is that working out? Uh, I'll, I, I, I'm used to eating much crow throughout <laughs> my, my career, Taylor. Don't worry about that. But I, I don't feel like I have... I don't I've think got, so either. I'm not beak deep just yet. Let's just say that. All right. Liverpool were outstanding in this game, mm-hmm. right? And I have, uh, I've, I've laid out my stall saying Manchester City are going to win the Premier League. And I think that Liverpool have lost their cloak of invincibility. I think things started to fade a little bit when they lost to that 3-0 loss to Watford last season. And then they went out the Champions League. Haven't looked quite the same since. And then, oh, they pop up here and they look incredible. And yep. they're pressing like crazy. And everything looks super energetic. And Mane looks like peak Mane. And uh, Thiago's come in and is doing all of the passing in the world. 
I don't know. It, 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 I think it, it, it looks very impressive for Liverpool, but this is a sample size of one game, effectively, yes. isn't it, we're looking at here. It so is. we've got to be careful. We do. To your point about Thiago, though, like we knew that move was sort of rumored in the offing for a very long time, and then it becomes official. And it slightly felt as though, even though it hadn't been made official, he had been like training with Liverpool for the last two weeks, because, as you said, he came in, he looked just fine in this one. He doesn't start, he comes on at halftime for Jordan Henderson. Yeah. But in the second half, keeps the ball moving, finds pockets of space, finds passes, does all the things we expected him to do. And I think, again, maybe from a Manchester United perspective, I was uh, impressed by what Liverpool are doing and simultaneously concerned for the state of the league because they seem to have added yet another very good piece to this team. Yeah, and by the way, I'd be worried about Jordan Henderson's uh, impending Mm -hmm. future in this team. He wasn't very good last weekend either. And uh, and then Thiago comes in and kind of steals the show in that position. So that's very interesting for them. Also, you know, Manchester, we're recording this before Manchester City play their first Premier League game. They are six points behind in the title race. It's over already. It's over. It is. I, mean, I don't know if they can close that gap, Ryan. It's going to be tough. <laughs> it's going to be tough. They will not have Ilkay Gundogan, I believe, tested positive for coronavirus, so he will be out oh uh, for their game today for Man City. For Liverpool, they do end up getting the 2-0 win. Two goals from Sadio Mane. The big, maybe, turning point of this one is the Christensen red card, which is initially a yellow card, and then I, I would argue very correctly uh, overruled by VAR in favor of a red for Christensen. Uh, denial of a goal-scoring opportunity, stops the last man. I don't think Kepa's going to get that ball so I I think I further understand why he makes that play but with the game going the way it had been Ryan do you feel like that was a necessary thing for Christensen to do it was this a sort of like I don't trust my goalkeeper I just got to try to make something happen and hopefully I get away with it moment or do you think Chelsea could have weathered going down one nil at that point in the game so this is a debate I want to put to you today Taylor Mm -hmm. is there ever an excuse or is there ever a situation where it's better for Christensen to just let money go and score the goal or try and do a professional foul. Because I would argue that if he'd let the goal, um, you know, let that play run through mm-hmm. and let Liverpool get the goal, Chelsea would have had a much better chance of competing in this game. Uh, because it was, as you say, the massive turning point of this game. I would argue it was actually pretty even before that point. Mm-hmm. And I would argue that as good as, as much praise as has been heaped on Thiago and it's deserved, he was doing it against 10 men yep. and had a bit of an advantage there. And so it really did change the way things were. So do you think there's an argument that he should have let it go? Obviously, we can talk about Kepper and <laughs> whether yeah. there should be trust in him a little later on. But in all, it, it doesn't. it's not... In all circumstances, you shouldn't let the goal happen because let's say Luis Suarez at the World Cup in 2010 when he very deliberately mm-hmm. handballed on the line, that was a tactical masterstroke of the dark arts. Yeah, and I, think, and I think that's a good example of times when maybe it does work out. Uh, as you said, I think with this one, where I get caught is like, what was Christensen processing in the moment? Because mm. if it was a deliberate, if it was a Jose Mourinho-esque, I've asked you to be cynical, Frank Lampard has said, don't give them easy opportunities if it comes to it foul – then he's doing what he's been instructed to do. But I have a feeling it's more likely that he is panicking in the moment. He's caught out a little bit. It's a great run from Mane. It's a great ball in. But it's him sort of being a little bit too far apart, not being able to close that distance, realizing he's about to get posterized. And I think he tries to make a play, but is also content to foul the player and hope that he gets away with it. And to me, yeah. that is then not 
planning or like playing the way you've been asked to play. It's not a sort of structural foul. It is very much a panic foul. And I think there, yeah, it, it definitely doesn't help the team because it's not a necessarily a sacrifice. It's a little bit of a clumsy panic sacrifice, which to me does make a difference. And I think then when you're 1-0 down, Tiago comes on, bosses the game, it makes an even larger impact overall. So yeah, I'm with you that like sometimes that heroic last ditch self-sacrificing mm-hmm. tackle, maybe it's better in the 89th minute as opposed to the 45th minute. How about that? Yeah, that sounds about right. It depends on the timing. But counterpoint to it being clumsy and panicked, now with Christensen out, Thiago Silva comes in. Mm-hmm. This is just Chelsea playing 4D chess. We're playing checkers. <laughs> I mean, I, I would say Thiago Silva probably going to be okay with that, given that it will get him minutes. Simultaneously, though, the way that the, the, high line, the line is high as it was, Thiago Silva being a veteran player is how I'll put that one. Uh, yeah. I do wonder if he's a little bit like, well, I'm going to be doing that exact same thing in a couple weeks, so I better take notes on how to do it slightly <laughs> slightly more legally, because otherwise I could be in trouble. But yes, I think we will probably see much more of him. We'll talk a little bit more about Liverpool, but I guess we will have to maybe stick with Chelsea for a moment. Do you want to go Timo Werner and your thoughts there, or do you want to go to Kepa since we've already mentioned him. Should we, should we get the Kepa uh, sure. situation out of the way? Um, he didn't have a very good game here, Taylor. No, That's he did my not, analysis. Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously, he made some very poor decisions. There was yeah. a moment where he came right out to the edge of the box, I think, to try and meet Mo Salah, who put a cross in. It was like, that was some mm-hmm. very bizarre decision-making. And obviously, uh, with the with the goal that he conceded by passing it straight out, from he got a Tamori pass back, come back to him, mm-hmm. and uh, let Mane take that right off of a, a pass, which was intended for... Who was that going to? Was it going to Jorginho, wasn't it? Yeah. Like, it was like, who was standing about five yards away? And there were claims that, you know, the players like Jorginho didn't give him an angle. Um, but I... I can't excuse it. I can't excuse that kind of thing when he could, he should have Mane in his plane of vision. He should know. I mean, he could just hoof it. Yeah, or play first time. I know that's not Kepa, but he yeah. could in that situation when you've got the intense pressing that Mane was doing in this game. He could have got out of danger a little bit better than that. So some very poor decision making from Kepa. And what I was wondering is, maybe you have some perspective on this. Obviously, the problem is, He's got low confidence. I don't mm-hmm. think he's a terrible goalkeeper. We know that from his time at, at Athletic Club. We know, you know, he was he was really great under Valverde, and did he? I think he was under Bielsa for a little bit as well, wasn't he? At, at um, in Bilbao. So we we know that you know he's he's a keeper mm-hmm. who's earned himself the status as the world's most expensive goalkeeper, and hasn't had a time of it since he uh, since he came here. So here, sorry, being the UK because I'm not in the UK. I know what you meant. Um, <laughs> um, but but is it a, is it a confidence? What do you do with the confidence issue? I suppose is my question here. Mm-hmm. I think is, is giving him time off is putting him in a suspense. Does that help his confidence or does that make him go more into the pit of despair? I think more into the pit of despair. I honestly think the the only solution that makes sense to me uh, for Chelsea would be to loan him out or to or maybe you can recoup some of the transfer fee and sell him on. Because I, I don't think, to your point, I do not think he's a bad goalkeeper. I do think that there's a very good chance that uh, if he could regain his form, maybe at Chelsea, but I don't think so. I think elsewhere, like his next club, I think he'll be very good. I think it's it's not a, oh, this is it. 
he's just going to be bad forever. But I do think it reminds me a little bit, uh, for, if you'll forgive me, a slightly extended analogy of uh, Michel Vorm in the All or Nothing to- uh, Tottenham documentary series. Mm-hmm. When we when we see his talking head, and we know now that it, uh, spoiler alert for that for that show, by the way, that like he's talking about a game that has already happened in which he has a howler, and you can hear him sort of trying to like talk up, like, oh yeah, then I made that save. Like you can hear him being optimistic about the positive moments when you know that any everyone is just going to remember the howler and a little bit of that exists with Keppa I think that no matter how well he plays at this point I think there's always going to be that yeah but you might make a mistake and I think his defenders probably just lose a little bit of of confidence in him and mm. even that like tiny tiny just moment of like I'm not sure he's going to be able to get this means you maybe aren't going to play him the ball maybe you don't move into the position you would otherwise because you're waiting to see if you need to cover for him and that type of thing bleeds into the overall performance and that's where I think Maybe just changing it up and getting him around uh, in a new situation around new faces, it just gives him that confidence back. Because otherwise, I don't really know how you get it back in their, this current run of form, especially when you have another goalkeeper coming in, I think, today. Yeah, but quite possibly. That, so that's going to be a difficult situation for Kipper, yeah. obviously. Difficult situation for Frank Lampard because he could have, he could have tried to substitute him, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't have worked. He won't come off. Would he? <laughs> Wait, what do you mean? In which of the many ways would he not come off? If, Kef- if you try to substitute Kepa, mm-hmm. he does not get substituted. He refuses. We know this already. So it, it, Lampard's in a difficult position. He has to stick with him for at least the 90. This is true. See, I wasn't sure if you meant that, like, like su- such is his level of confidence that if you tried to sub him, he would get confused and, like, go the other way or something like that. Because <laughs> it is... It has not been a good time, and it's and it's telling to me that like we had like there were many many pund- pundit debates. I wouldn't say on this show, but on other shows about. Should all of these teams be so focused on playing out of the back? And it's Arsenal under Emery when Petr Cech cannot do it. It's Man City in seasons past of like, is there an over-reliance on trying to play out of the back that like is to the detriment of the goalkeeper and the defense because you put yourself in a vulnerable, vulnerable position? I think it's very telling that we have not had that same conversation about Kepa because... At this point, it is sort of like, okay, it's an established way to play. You would expect your goalkeeper to be able to complete a six-yard, seven-yard pass. And when he mm. can't, I don't think it's the system not working. I think it's a player being very low in confidence and honestly like not trusting himself to complete that time, that pass first time. Or even worse, being overly confident of no one's going to be able to get this ball off of me. And then they do just that. So definitely a worrying sign for Chelsea. Worrying that they don't get any goals in this one either. Timo Werner has an opportunity disallowed uh, due to offside VAR coming in there. Lots of VAR issues this weekend. We can talk about those or not. Um, did you see any positive signs for Chelsea or did you see any other warning signs for Chelsea from this one? Um, let, maybe I'll talk about Timo Werner. I thought, um, you know, Kai Havertz didn't have a great game in mm-hmm. this one, but Timo Werner I was concerned with because I thought he, his decision making was a little bit off on occasion in this game. Mm-hmm. I thought that there was a moment, I think, in the first half where he'd been set free completely um, and he was on the left flank as, as, he, as he was operating. And he had the opportunity to take his first touch into more space where he could get a shot off. Instead, he played the ball towards Fabinho, who took the ball straight off of him. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why he didn't drive into space in that moment. And there was a moment probably about 15 minutes later where I think they had a three on two situation. He had a completely free pass to Alonso coming up on the left and he sort of went the selfish route and had a pretty meek shot instead. And it just felt like that kind of decision making wasn't quite on point. And I have to say, I think I've seen a little bit of that from watching him with Leipzig a little bit as well. So there's, there's some refinement to be made with Timo Werner, I would argue. 
I would agree with that. I would say there's refinement for all of Chelsea, and I think contrasting them with Liverpool, you can see a team... I would say the same thing kind of goes for Borussia Dortmund as it goes for Liverpool, that you could see there's a familiarity with a lot of those players. They know the runs that each other are going to make. It's Erling Haaland and Jadon Sancho knowing how to combine. In this mm. game, it's it's uh, it's Firmino, it's Salah, it's, it's Mane, it's Trent Alexander-Arnold knowing exactly where to be at the exact right moments. And I think some of those repetitions and patterns of play give Liverpool that advantage automatically. I think Chelsea don't quite have those yet, and that's where you do see some of the more individual decision-making, some individual mistakes. I have to believe that as they get more familiarity, you see that offense kind of round into a next gear, to mix metaphors a bit. But I'm with you that on the day, I think especially once they go down to 10, it feels more like a team, a unified team versus a team of individuals trying to play as a unified system. So as we progress, I'm guessing Chelsea get a little bit tighter, a little bit more cohesive. And my assumption would be that Liverpool will continue to do to play the exact same way they have been. So I'm going to guess the return fixture of this one is going to be very, very exciting. But I wouldn't be surprised as well if the scoreline is somewhat similar. We've kind of, we've kind of gone long on this game. Anything else you wanted to mention about this one? Yeah, just one other thing I'd like to say, Taylor, maybe about the managers uh, and the differences between them here. For me, it felt like Klopp was kind of the guy with the PhD at university getting his doctorate, whereas Lampard is the precocious and cocky kid sitting his SATs. He's going to ace them. They're both talented in their respective areas, but they're in different leagues at this point. And I think, you know, Klopp has a team that knows exactly what it's doing. Maybe Lampard doesn't have that. Is that fair? I mean, it's fair, but I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a criticism either because it is just the case that Klopp is one of the two best managers in the world, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And Frank Lampard, I think, will be a good manager, has proven himself to be good in certain ways, has areas he needs to develop. But yes, I think your point is valid that Jurgen Klopp is probably a bit more like tactically astute at this point, has the more managerial experience. So yeah, maybe is the PhD uh, qualified person. And Frank yeah. Lampard, yeah, uh, he's definitely going to do well on the SATs, but we're not sure how well, <laughs> well or how we, much we he's actually prepared well, for them. We know how well, because he tells us all the time his GCSEs <laughs> that he got A's and A stars. He, he makes that reference a lot. So that's maybe why it crept into my head. Um, one tiny little thing. I know we have run long on this game, but Julian Laurent tweeted this. When the uh, red card was given to Christensen, the Liverpool players in in the stands, clapped and sort of celebrated. Yeah. Klopp turned round to them from the touchline and shouted, are you crazy? We never do that, okay? Which kind of made me feel even warm and fuzzier about Jurgen Klopp. I like it. I like it just from a like you know sportsmanship standpoint, but I yeah. also really enjoy that he, like, it's a reminder of the discipline you need and the mental discipline at that because applauding going ahead one player sort of does send a vibe of like, oh, we weren't sure we were going to win this. We needed that leg up. We needed that advantage. Like, yay, now we've got something. And I think you don't want to betray those those moments in a game. It's why, like, I was taught, like, there's a little bit of, of gamesmanship that if you have a really, really good chance and you, like, pull a shot out of nowhere and it hits the bar and, like, everybody's like, wow, like, like the Giorena goal, which was a 7% chance of scoring acting like, oh, I should have scored that even when it's a low percentage chance, mm. sends a message. It sends this like, wow, these guys are ruthless versus applauding a red card feels a little bit more like, okay, these guys are just like us. They're hoping things go their way. And if you're right. looking for bounces, if you're looking for favorable calls, then I feel like you're not quite head in the game. And I'm guessing that's what Klopp was going to. So it makes me appreciate him. It also just makes me all the more terrified of Liverpool. Uh, one thing I'm not terrified of, Ryan, here's your transition, is getting life insurance. September, we 
here in September is National Life Insurance Awareness Month. But with everything going on right now, a lot of people aren't even aware it's possible to buy life insurance at all. And that's where today's sponsor, Policy Genius, comes in. Ryan, can you talk us through the steps you can go through to uh, use Policy Genius? Before we do that, every day is a school day. I did not know that September was National Life Insurance Awareness Month. I'm very happy that it is. But right now, you could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius. What you do, Taylor, is you compare life insurance policies and presumably all other kind of insurance policies too. Step one. Head to policygenius.com. In minutes, you can work out how much coverage you need and compare quotes from top insurers for your best price. Step two, Mm -hmm. pick the lowest one. Yep. Step three, (laughs) Policy Genius team will handle all the paperwork, all the red tape Mm -hmm. and bureaucracy. Step four, go on living your life. Is that the step four? Yeah, Yeah. I think that's it. I also love whenever one of the steps is the other group does all of the work for you. That's always a good step to have in there as opposed to like there's 19 steps and then on number 20 is then we figure it out from there. When it's a three-step process and step three is we do everything else, I am okay with that and I hope our listeners are as well. So if they do need life insurance they can head to policygenius.com right now to get started you could save fifteen hundred dollars or more a year by comparing quotes on their marketplace policy genius when it comes to insurance it's nice to get it right and they Mm -hmm. guarantee to do just that so thank you very much to policy genius for sponsoring today's episode I guess we have to talk Manchester United Crystal Palace, Ryan. I guess we have to. That's the other sort of major result of the weekend. Tottenham get a win. Leeds get a win. Fulham pull some goals back. There's big results there. But Manchester United Palace seems to have been the big talking point. I wasn't as surprised by this one. What were your thoughts heading into it? And were you surprised by the result? Well, when we chatted before the mm-hmm. weekend, Taylor, I was thinking, oh, Man United could run away with this one. And you were like, no, I think Man United are going to lose this one. And it's going to be despair and distraught for Taylor Rockwell. Talk me through what made you think that would happen and how it came to pass, please. Uh, it, it fe- So there's a number of different factors there. Number one, it feels like it's the kind of same old Manchester United of having gotten their deals done, have had obvious areas of need, identified areas of need, things that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has publicly talked about, that they haven't really addressed them. Donny van de Beek gives you depth, but isn't going mm-hmm. to be a starter when Pogba and Bruno Fernandes are healthy, and they at least started the game. So it felt to me like you have the depth issues, you have the sort of like chemistry issues such as they are in that I feel like you don't have the competitiveness you need, you don't have the depth in the squad to make everybody kind of raise their game. But then the larger stuff comes into play with the narrative seems to have been After the restart, they were amazing. They were this incredibly exciting team. They couldn't stop scoring. They couldn't stop winning. And they're going to continue that in. Solskjaer's got it figured out. And it's just been very strange to me because that completely forgets that at the end of the restart, they were really struggling. They did not have the depth. He didn't want to play people that clearly don't fit his system or aren't like sort of up to what he's asking of them. And with that, you you start getting injuries. You start kind of running into consistency issues because everybody's tired. And this is a team that then has, what, like a 10-day break, then they have international duty, then they have one preseason friendly, and then they're basically starting the season again. So the fatigue issues haven't gone away. They don't have the depth really to weather that sort of issue. And then you're going up against Crystal Palace, who are going to be frustrating and have made smart signings. And it just Mm -hmm. felt like this was going to be a Manchester United come into this one, sort of stroll around for the first 20 minutes and probably get thwacked a little bit and try to come back. And then that's the question of, can they fight back? Do you see that resolve? And I would argue we really did not in this game. Donny van de Beek gets his uh, Manchester United opener. He starts that, so that's good. But aside from that, 
it, this felt more so like Crystal Palace doing exactly what they wanted to do, uh, even if that means they didn't really see much of the ball. They did not. I believe halftime possession for Palace was 26%. I think it dropped to 22 by the end mm-hmm. of the game. Yet, for many spells when I was watching this, I felt like Palace looked dominant. And I think my question for you, Taylor, is there was a lot of mm-hmm. poor Man United performances. Van der Beek, as you say, was pretty good. But Pogba, like uh, Daniel James and, and Bruno Fernandes all had bad yep. bad games. Uh, the defending was quite poor. I mean, you look at the first goal where um, Schlupp, easily got past Lindelof, who mm-hmm. was not very good in this game. No. And uh, Townsend easily got past Luke Shaw at the other flank when the ball came in. Luke Shaw uh, not using his uh, blistering pace to deal with that ball at all. Um, Maguire's positioning, I think, was probably off there. Uh, you know, you could, mm-hmm. play, you could throw the finger at Fosu Mensah there. there. And there was some some sleepy defending as well for the third goal as well, which allowed uh, Wilf Zaha to sort of spin and get his shot off as well. Was this a case of just too many subpar performances from individuals or is there a, a, a greater rot going on here because I look I came into this thinking oh Man United are on a 14 game winning streak and as you say it did get you know there were some signs of issues at the end of the uh, of the previous season but they're still coming off good form and it felt like to me particularly when you go on social media you, the negative the Man United negativity comes out of the woodwork at convenient times like this when they happen to have a drop mm-hmm. and is that just down to individual mistakes and you know this was a bad day for man united or is it a sign of you know woodward out we need a director of football so on um i i I mean the the easy answer is a little bit of everything what what i would say is that i think the negativity is always going to be there when there's a loss but i Mm. think the negativity is exacerbated when the areas of need are obvious and the problems have not been addressed and i think that's sort of where I am with this is that like there, there is, you need depth that why they do not have the depth of attack that, that would allow them to feel probably stable if they do have a couple of injuries. And even if like they just have a, a bad game, if a player's having a bad game, you need somebody to deputize here because Greenwood doesn't start for whatever reason. Danny James does and he starts out of position and I think is very much involved in that first goal in that he doesn't yeah. step when he needs to. Then he does step at the wrong time and leave space and that's where the ball goes. And I think. You have these young players who don't necessarily, like, aren't quite yet up to that level. I think Danny James was meant to be a, we'll develop him, we'll give him minutes here and there. He will be a sort of reserve team player that eventually grows into a starting role. Then he's thrown into the starting spotlight right away. Then when other players come in, he sort of falls away. But then when you need him, you throw him back in there out of position and hope it works out. And I think that is maybe the reason why I harp on that is because it feels like that is Manchester United in a nutshell. It's sort of throwing solutions at the wall and hoping they stick. But there's Mm -hmm. no real consistent approach to dealing with some of those issues. You don't have a director of football who's figuring things out. You don't have a sort of unified approach to the transfer market. The, The reporting I keep seeing is that. Manchester United used to have Sir Alex Ferguson involved in the negotiations. He would ha- they would have him meet players and pitch them on his vision for the club and how they go about doing what they do and why they've been so successful. By all accounts, Ed Woodward sends lawyers to get the job done and sort of nickels and dimes in hopes of getting the best possible deal, but doesn't really convince the talent, has people who don't even know there are reports that like in one of their last negotiations, the lawyer had to ask the player who he was before they started. And like <laughs> that is not what you want when you're bringing in new players. And I just think there is, I think there's some front office rot for sure i think there are a few players at this point who maybe don't need to be at the club anymore but i think just the larger issue is a lack of overall vision 
or even when there is vision uh, in Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, and I do think he has an idea for how he would like to play and how he would like to manage, but if you don't then back him so that he can execute that vision, it's sort of like Jurgen Klopp wanting to have this high-pressing team and never buying players that fit that and never really buying any players at all, like and expecting him to get Christian Benteke to play high-octane football and getting uh, Sako to do the same thing. And we know they can't. We have the evidence that they can't. But persisting in that idea because otherwise you've got to spend $30 million or $40 million, I think it's kind of the nature of the beast at this point. And if you don't want to do that, then... I don't know Manchester United stay the well, global brand that they have been. Oh, and that's very important. Global branding. We need a Man United toothpaste in Asia, which is uh, what this it's is the most all about. Important of course, thing. this whole soccer thing that we're doing. Yeah. Um, I, can, I, can, I, can I call you up on you know sure. needing to back uh, Solskjaer? Mm-hmm. Which okay, that's a fair point. But is this, is the fix here to throw money at the problem? Because from where I'm standing. Quite a lot of money has been thrown at quite a lot of problems in the post-Ferguson era. Yep. And Man- Manchester United seemed like a textbook example of wasted money, wasted financial power in soccer. You look yep. at what they've spent in those in those years since Ferguson retired, and then you look at this team that started this game with Lindelof, with you know James, with, with you know, you know Harlow coming on and McTominay starting in here. This does not look like a team that should be on this field at this point having all that money spent over the last few years it just seems like something's gone very very wrong and even if you were to say oh there's lots of young players Mason Greenwood Wait, did you throw McTominay in there as a player they spent money on no I'm saying that they they have spent all this money and this mm-hmm. is what they've got on the field oh, I see yeah yeah, yeah. And it's not as if like they've got you know Borussia Dortmund style young exciting teenagers coming through and they're gonna boss it because mm-hmm. yes Mason Greenwood is good but it, that's not the vibe we're getting from this team. It still feels like a mishmash, this team, doesn't it? Yes. And it still I, feels like this is not an elite squad that's going to compete with the top two teams in the Premier League anytime soon, despite the fact that, as I say, over the last few years, they've spent a shocking amount of money. And is if the solution is to throw more money at Solskjaer, mm-hmm. who says that's going to work? Um, I'm with you. I, I don't think it, it will work this season. I honestly don't. I think my where I would go with this, and I don't want to spend like too long on the nitty-gritty of Manchester United because I'm aware that if you're not a Man United fan, you don't care. You might enjoy the the pain. <laughs> it's a little, little bit of schadenfreude. But um, I think the two issues for me are how they've spent the money they've spent and then what do you do from there? And I think w- what I keep going back to is like it's like as though you and I are negotiating the price of something. You say it's $100. I offer 50 you say $100, and I'm like, 60 You say $100, I'm like, 70 And that seems to be Manchester United, is they think they have this financial muscle that they can flex, and in reality, I think teams like Borussia Dortmund know we can hold on to our players, and eventually you're going to meet our asking price because we don't feel the pressure to sell. Certainly, Premier League clubs don't because Leicester City have money of their own, so they're happy to sit on that player until Mm. the valuation is met. And I think what ends up happening then is things get drawn out and there's more drama. And the longer things go on, the more it starts to feel like, do these people know what they're doing? And then when you end up buying Harry Maguire for the original asking price months after you could have first gotten him or you end up paying more for a player because you didn't buy them like when they're like before their fee jumped. It's things like that that then feel like, okay. They're spending money, but there doesn't seem to be any sort of rhyme or reason or actual plan to it. It's just mm-hmm. eventually their hand gets forced. That's the second part of my prediction is now 
I'm not going to be surprised when they then offer 120 million euros for Jaden Sancho, which they could have done two months ago if they wanted to. It's just that's where it feels like it's kind of a scattershot thing of the investment isn't they have this area of need. They've identified the target. That target is going to cost X amount of money. They negotiate a little bit, but in the end, that deal gets done. It feels much more so like there's an area of need. Maybe we can have a left back play right wing. Oh, that's not working. Well, we did sign that right winger four years ago and he hasn't come good, but let's try him again. All right. Mm. Now we'll nickel and dime them. And it's just the process, I think, is where I have an issue. And that then is the second part of it, which is that if it's this prolonged thing and they tend to miss or they tend to drag these things out. No, I don't think bringing in four new players is going to work because I think it's going to be panic buying that maybe isn't necessarily the player you wanted, but it's the one you can afford in the moment. Or if it is the player you wanted, then you're paying over the odds for them. And then you still have to have them bet in over the next two months when you could have had that sort of happening, uh, albeit with an abbreviated preseason. So I think that's kind of where I am with it is that even if they sign players, I don't know how you fix things right away. It's why I've been sort of sour on Manchester United since the start. It's why I'm not sour on, say, Crystal Palace, who got their business done and and looked like a very strong unit. I wouldn't be surprised if they invest very, a little bit more money. But I think if you're a Palace fan, you have to feel pretty optimistic about things, uh, especially so when it's Wilfred Zaha, the former Manchester United player, uh, scoring goals and embarrassing his former club. That's got to feel good, too, I think. Yeah, Wilfred Zaha's best performance at Old Trafford, despite being a Manchester United player for a (laughs) while. Yeah, so this is quite a a turn up for the books for him. Yeah, I think I agree with most of what you're saying there. Just, I don't know, this this was a a Manchester United team that was slow. They were flat. They had, you know, a a delayed start to the season. I don't feel like they had excuses to come out of the gates like this. And just a lot of players who massively underperformed. And someone like Daniel James, yes, he was out of position, but would... If if he was under Pep Guardiola, I feel like Pep would have progressed him. He hasn't. Mm-hmm. He had. I mean, I, I thought he was pretty decent last season in spells, but he hasn't progressed. Is that no. fair? No. Yeah, it is. And I think. I mean, there, there's no denying that. I think the same goes for for Liverpool. Honestly, like you could probably say the same thing for Crystal Palace and your, and Roy Hodgson. That like if you're going into a system where you know exactly how you're going to play, the manager knows his team, knows the people who are in it, knows his first choice eleven, and you're trying to break into that. There is a system there. There's an organization there that you can function within. Players want structure. You know, kids want structure. It's how it works. You want to know this is what's being asked of me. If I do this, if I perform this way, then there's a chance I'm going to make the starting 11. I think for Danny James, it's a bit more like, oh, yeah, you're starting this week. Okay, now you're not. Now you're a left winger. Okay, actually, you're a right winger this week because we need this. It, <laughs> it just feels much more scattershot. And I think if you're around a team that is cohesive and playing very attacking soccer and very, like, high tempo, there's a big demand on you, there's a lot of pressure on you, you're going to raise your game or you're not, but then you're going to be sold on. I just get the vibe at Manchester United that things are a little bit more disjointed. You don't have that squad cohesion. There are injuries. There are players who want to leave. There are players who should want to leave but don't and are still there. And I think there's just a lot of chemistry issues that don't facilitate that development in a player, at least not right now. Maybe I'm just being overly negative because of the way the season has started. But I I do think that there are some pretty fundamental issues at that club that probably don't get resolved until you have a director of football, maybe until you have new owners. But since neither of those seem like they're going to happen anytime soon, I'm going to expect more up and down performances from Manchester United this season. Uh, Same old old Manchester United. Tick, Oli maybe not at the wheel. Tick, 
Can we move on to a more fun game to talk about, Taylor? I suppose we should. But before we do that, we should talk about today's sponsor. It's a new one. We have a debut sponsor. It's Magic Spoon. They are uh, keto, not keto, keto, I'm stressing, <laughs> cereal. Uh, it's high protein, low sugar, keto-friendly, non-GMO, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, wheat-free, nothing artificial, it's healthy, is I guess what I'm saying. But it's basically a way that you can have breakfast cereal the way you did when you were a kid, except this time instead of it being a bowl of milk and sugar, it's a bowl of milk and good stuff. Did you nearly say Brexit cereal there? I mean, you know, it could be that too. <laughs> you eat it and you're suddenly like, you know what? I don't know how I feel about continental Europe anymore. I think I need to reevaluate my life choices. That's how it I works. I think um, the, the, the yes, you're right. This is a, a, a sort of a grown-up cereal, is what yes. we'll call this. As you say, yeah. keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, low-carb, and GMO-free. Guilt-free, I would say, is mm. the uh, the headline here of uh, Magic Spoon. I think that very, very sugary, bone-shakingly uh, bone sugary cereals <laughs> are a distinctly American thing. Lucky Charms, for example, I don't think it's legal to sell them in Europe. No, those are Irish. Oh, are they? Ah, oh, of course. That's what the leprechaun's <laughs> on the box for. You're right. You're right. I feel like that might have been racist. I don't feel good about that anymore. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, is that really an American thing? I guess you're right. What, like the, the few times I've been around cereal in England and Germany, it's definitely more like mucelix and cereal that will change you structurally versus cereal that will give you diabetes. Yeah, I think that's maybe that's an American trend. I had a I had a burger yesterday with seven pieces of bacon on it, Taylor. Seven, seven yeah. pieces of bacon. It's called the Freedom Burger. burger. You're welcome. It, it was. I, I, there was an eagle soaring over my head as I took a bite. Uh, the first bite, it was wonderful. Uh, but you know, this I've actually I've been trying to do better with my diet. That burger, uh, not forgiving, and I'm trying to cut down on sugar. I'm trying to cut down on dairy. I've switched mm -hmm. to almond milk at home, for example. And I'm happy with that switch. Uh, so I'm trying to cut down carbs and sugar and unhealthy food and all that stuff. And magic spoon that fits into my plan, Taylor. Oat milk, also decent, but then there's mm. oats in it, so I don't know where that is carb-wise. But yes, uh, that's where Magic Spoon is. Zero sugar, 11 grams protein, three net carbs. You've got four different flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, blueberry. I think you could even combine those. I feel like frosted blueberry would be good. I don't know about cocoa, fruity, but cocoa... Blueberry, I could do that one too. Good. So you can kind of mix them up, uh, mix and match as you want to. You can go to magicspoon.com slash TSS to grab a variety pack and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code TSS at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with 100% happiness guarantee. A happiness guarantee. So if wow. you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money. No questions asked. I, just, I don't like questions when I get refund. That's that's, that's wonderful. That's, that's my one policy. If you're going to ask me a question when I'm going to be refund, I'm not interested. There we are. Magicspoon.com <laughs> slash TSS. No questions asked. Happiness guarantee. Cereal. Mm -hmm. Yum. <laughs> uh, thank you very much to Magic Spoon for sponsoring this episode. We welcome them onto the show. Thank you for that. Yay. Ryan, let's talk about a happier game. Let's talk about Leeds Fulham, shall we? At least happier for Leeds fans, less so for Fulham fans. Although, maybe reasons for optimism. Where do you want to go with this one? Happier for neutral fans, I'd say. Another 4-3 yeah, for Leeds. Uh, more um, praying at the altar of Bielsa for this game, was it not? This, is a, this was a very, very entertaining game. I think I'll start off by saying that Leeds conceded 36 goals in the entire championship season last season. They've already shipped seven in two games here, so they've conceded 20% of their <laughs> tally from last season. So as oh good and as, as thrilling as this Leeds team are, they need to be better at defending. They can't. It's fine to concede that many goals against Liverpool, maybe not against Fulham, who 
we can get onto this, but heh, not so great. Um, is it that the formation is too, I mean, as good as, um, as Calvin Phillips is in the middle, is too much being asked of him to protect that back line? Do they need something a bit more sturdy in, in defensive midfield? I don't know. I, I worry a little bit about them, but also at the same time, I'm flecked with joy having watched that game. Yeah. I think I think the the question you're posing is a very difficult one, which is like, can you be more defensive, or does do you have to take those risks to play they want to play and score the goals they want to score? It also means that you might be vulnerable. So I, basically, I think the only way we'll know how it's working is to see. I would expect more of these types of games of three two and four to three, but over the course of the season, as we go into October and then November. Does it become three to one, two nil? Like, do you start to see them be able to handle the defensive pressure while still scoring, or do they have to adjust it entirely as they get stronger opposition who then they're losing to six two or five one or something mm. like that? I think how they adjust based on the strength of their schedule and if they're able to will continue to make Leeds a fascinating team, uh, because right now they already are. And I think that sort of development will make them even more so. Yeah, and they're just, it's just a super fun experience mm-hmm. to wake up on a Saturday morning and watch this Leeds team at the moment with uh, Bielsa crouching for the entire game, looking like he's going to have a heart attack most games as well. Uh, yeah, j- just, just a lot of fun. And I, I, one, one thing about this team also, Taylor, is they, they're very clinical. Yeah. They, I think they had three goals from six shots against Liverpool. They had nine shots in this game and have four goals. And Patrick Bamford is, some sort of clinical magician. I was informed this was not the case previously, and apparently he is. So credit to Leeds for for making the most of their chances as well. Watching him score that goal was a moment for me. (laughs) Because I think, as I said to you previously, Daryl and I have each had different predictions about how Mm. this is going to be Patrick Bamford's year. He's finally going to shine. It did not go that way, to the extent that then we were like, maybe the championship just is his level. So to watch him... Just dust. I think it was a doy that he just kind of goes past. It was, but that's the thing is like it wasn't like he just blazes past him with pace. I was trying to think of like the best word. I forget what I ended up using for it, but it's basically that he just sort of is able. I think gallop was what I went with. That he's able to just move into that space, get around the defender. It shows you that maybe Fulham's defense not as strong as they would probably like. Yeah. But then that finish, it's just a great finish, and it's and it is very clinical. It is very sharp, and I think again, it speaks to if you're in a system that you understand that you have the backing of the manager, it just gives you a little bit more freedom to play. I think it gives you a little bit more confidence. I don't think he finishes that when he's playing for Chelsea or when he's playing for Palace or whomever else, I think he struggles to find a way through in a way that he did not yesterday. Yeah, and I thought this is a really nice direct uh, Leeds goal here. Like a classic Leeds? No, I'm not going to call it that. It was a good (laughs) Leeds goal. The ball won in their own... This is the third goal, the Patrick Bamford's goal, where the ball was sort of won uh, and intercepted within Leeds' own half. Pass comes through the middle to Click, I believe it is, who kind of stops, like PLO style, assesses the situation, slows down time, and then um, QBs it through to Patrick Bamford uh, for that very good finish as well. So that was a really enjoyable uh, uh, passage of play, I thought. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so he gets the goal, he gets the uh, assist for the for the fourth goal. Then we have Fulham pull two back, it finishes 4-3 after Leeds go up 4-1. Do, do we make anything of that, or was that maybe Leeds just kind of feeling it and Fulham being desperate to show that they can do something? 
I think I think this was in, it showed some encouraging signs for Fulham because unlike last week against Arsenal, we actually saw them managing to get some decent attacks together, having a better reaction in the second half and having quite a positive second half, I would argue. Obviously, it did look like they might even get uh, some points out of this game. Um, but then, then you look at the defending they've done in yep. some of these goals, and you know, like say for for, for Costa's goal, the fourth goal, um, there were as the ball came in for for, for Costa, there were three white shirts completely yep. unmarked. Stuart yep. Dallas was on the edge of the box, completely unmarked as well. It's like, what are you doing in training? What the, are you the, doing in training that brings this situation onto the field? It's a question. The match of the day guys uh, were pointing that out, that I think for that fourth goal, as Bamford goes by Adoy, that there are four Fulham players uh, just walking back from the yeah. attack. Like you have no sort of transition to defense, getting back into shape to make sure you're dealing with this counterattack. It's a bit more like, well, I've done my job. Hopefully they hold on. Yeah, and that first goal, the, the Helder Costa goal, which was mm-hmm. really nicely taken, that uh, corner that yeah. was sort of smashed against the crossbar. Goals are always better when they hit the crossbar. That's the rules. We know but this. It's science. There's, there's no Fulham player anywhere near him in the box for several seconds before that corner comes in. And there are, I think, four red shirts on the edge of the six-yard box, just sort of zonally marking a few inches around themselves is what I can think they're doing. <laughs> yeah. But just sort of very, very poor defending from Fulham in those instances. I um I I I'm almost I just think maybe what would happen if Brentford went up instead? Yes, they you yeah. know they might have they sort of bottled the end of their season, and you could argue they'd be in trouble as well, and they probably would be. But would they have put up more of an impressive performance in their opening two games than Fulham did? I don't think I've ever been so sure that a team is yeah. going down at this stage that I am right now. And and my hope is that that's not necessarily like a bad thing for Fulham, as in I don't know if they're planning to be back in the Premier League long term the way they were. I think last time they came up, spent all the money, went right back down. Mm. My hope is that maybe they're being a little bit more like West Brom, that they're oh, they're excited to be back up, but maybe it's a little bit ahead of, ahead of schedule. They want to sort of continue to smartly invest. They're going to back Scott Parker. I think we'll know what happens if Scott Parker gets sacked, then that is not the plan. If they stick with him, even if they're rooted to the bottom of the table, yeah. I think it shows that they're okay with things being as they are, as long as they get get better from here Mm. and I think they can only get better from here because yeah to your point about Helder Costa's opener it is I think Fulham players failing to get ahead to the corner but then also being very surprised that there's a Leeds player wide open at the back post and you can sort of it did really remind me of like this sounds really really burnt like a burn and I don't mean for it to be but like it reminded me of amateur soccer of just like oh we all made a play on the ball but nobody actually made a play, and then we turn around and there's a guy wide open. Oh, now we all got to step to him. It was just a sort of very reactionary moment in a way that I feel like you don't often see in the Premier League. It tends to be much more like they were trying to do this, and then the opponent tried to do that. And in trying to do this, this opportunity presented itself. This one felt more like, yeah, they just couldn't do anything, and then Leeds scored. And I think that is definitely a worrying sign from Fulham fans, but that they pull three back, as I said earlier— it at least means there's fight. It at least means there's heart. There's not that, oh, we're 2-0 down, that's it, we don't care anymore. So even that fight back is probably a difference from the last time they were in the Premier League, at least to me. Yeah, and I don't see this being a Derby slash Swindon embarrassing situation. Yeah. I think that there are some positive signs here. And uh, as I say, like, when, when they uh, maybe go completely full strength, and then Gisa was very good in this game as well, wasn't he? And I thought yes. the defensive midfield wasn't too bad at all with Reading and Gisa um, sort of holding things together in a way that maybe Leeds' back line aren't protected. Maybe that's food for thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't have much faith in this Fulham team staying up. Apologies to all my Fulham friends. 
Yeah, I think I think there's a difference between like being irrationally negative and being realistically. Uh, I shouldn't even say negative, just realistically appraising the situation. So I think that's where Fulham are right now. Leeds mm-hmm. with the win. Credit to them. Uh, we have one more Premier League game to talk about, then some continental affairs. Let's talk about Southampton to Tottenham 5. Uh, Son Heung-min gets four goals, but shouldn't be the man of the match, according to Jose Mourinho. A moment that I think has been a little bit overblown uh, by certain members of the press. Uh, Ryan, what did you make of this game? My takeaway is sort of that it was Tottenham playing the way we've come to expect uh, under Jose Mourinho, and it was Southampton doing the opposite of that for Ralph Hasenhutl. Yeah, it was interesting because it did seem like... Uh, the, I, I felt the, flat, the scoreline kind of flattered Tottenham a little bit. In mm-hmm. the Southampton just let Hominson score the same goal four times. <laughs> they basically... They, they didn't learn yeah. from the first one, and they let him do it again and again and again. I think that's sort of a, a detriment to Ralph Hasenhutl in that mm-hmm. respect. They didn't learn to deal with what, what, they, what Tottenham kept doing over and over. And, you know, there were moments I think uh, um, Southampton could have made more of a game of this. It could, they could have scored a couple more goals, arguably. So mm-hmm. um, I, I, I think it flattered them. But, I, I mean, who, if, if not Son for man of the match, came. Who else would it yeah, be? Th- that's what he said. I think he came over to the Harry Kane should be man of the match. Right. I think it was it was very much meant to be tongue in cheek. It was just it was like the the moment where Eric Dyer injures Son Heung-min and Jose Mourinho tries to make a joke and it just falls very flat. <laughs> Go on, you're the same son. thing. I'm I'm so angry. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was almost that exact vibe of like Harry Kane man of match, and then he's like, huh? and Son was just like, yeah, okay. Anyway, yeah, it was a good game. Like he was not really entertaining it, oh but God, I don't think there's Mourinho any bad blood Son? There. Is this what the, we're getting here? He's trying to troll Son at every opportunity. I think he's trying. I think it was that sort of like he's done that before, where he'll like jump into an interview and be like, why don't you score the fourth or whatever? Like he likes to sort of insert himself into those in moments to be jokey i think and that one maybe just didn't quite ring that way yeah but i think but it still is you're right son Heung-min just scoring the same goal because southampton failed to adjust and it was like it reminded me of matias almeida for the san jose earthquakes of like they're trying a thing they're trying this not like san jose obviously to a, a i would argue absurd degree with the like man marking high pressing high octane soccer and when it works, it works. And when it doesn't, it really doesn't. This felt like Southampton's approach just sort of not working on the day. That you didn't see that the high energy, you didn't see those tough tackles, you didn't see them making it difficult for Tottenham to find a way through. There was just so much space to operate within that then by the time they are able to close that down, the back line has like maybe stepped up slowly, but not as a unit or maybe not at all. And so there is space, there are opportunities. And I think Tottenham were just very capable of exploiting that. To some extent, I think Southampton pretty much just played into Jose Mourinho's hands in that they tried to go at them, but not with the force that was ever going to sort of knock Tottenham back. Yeah. They basically just tried to go at them, but then ended up leaving space behind for Son Heung-min to exploit and score. Yeah, and I think if you look at the results, South, uh, Southampton have lost their first two games, but but it was also to a good Crystal Palace yeah. side. Uh, and uh, actually, they lost in the League Cup to Brentford as well in, in between those two games. Right, so they've right. lost three games this season already. See, Brentford should have been there. Brentford yeah, should have been there. <laughs> if only, if only that final had gone differently. Um, I, but but I don't take, I, I'm not too discouraged for Ralph mm-hmm. Hasenhutl, basically, because I think there's promise here and I think this game show promise. So I'm not going to start pulling any panic alarms at St. Mary's. I think that's fair. I think there should be no panic alarms at all uh, at Tottenham. Uh, and then we have uh, Reguillon. Reguillon? One day I'll learn how to pronounce it properly. And Gareth Bale coming in. Uh, we talked about that a little bit about, about that on Friday. 
easy for me to say. Uh, have you have do you have any new thoughts about Gareth Bale coming in? Because I just I just think my my biggest takeaway is I just want to see him play. It's been so long since we saw him play. I want to see him play in a situation in which mm. he's valued. The manager wants him there. I. I have heard some arguments that are negative about this. I don't see how this goes any any way but very positive for Tottenham. Yeah, I think so. I mean, my I, I suppose my question is where does he naturally fit into mm-hmm. this four three three? Maybe it's Mourinho uh, trolling Sonny once again and just taking yeah. him out of the squad, Deli Ali style, <laughs> just to, uh, to to accommodate Gareth Bale. We'll see how that one pans out. But I think that left side of uh, of Tottenham is going to be uh, very emboldened by this, even if it does uh, also feature uh, Tongi Undumbeli. Um, yeah. So, so we'll see. Um, Who did start and did look good in this game? So that yeah. was also a positive sign, I think. Give him for credit. Spurs and fans. he was doing. Yeah, he did some. Um, well, I think he got booked, didn't he? And he, he got doing some tackles and whatnot, yeah. which is probably what he's supposed to do. Um, yeah, I, I think that it, it's interesting because I mean he's still going to keep playing Lucas Mora on the other mm-hmm. side, isn't he? <laughs> yes, he is. Yes, yeah, <laughs> he loves he- Lucas Mora. I think it'll just be like a rotation of that, like in that front three slash four, I think Gareth Bale will just be in there. So sometimes it will be Son starts, sometimes it's him on the bench and Gareth Bale starts. Sometimes Mm -hmm. maybe Harry Kane will get a breather and Gareth Bale will start as a main center forward. But I think you'll see a lot of rotation there. I also think listening to Football Weekly and Sid Lowe talk about this, it's just worth remembering that this isn't a player who hasn't played because of injury. It's not somebody who Tottenham are rolling the dice on because he's been injured so often. Hopefully he stays healthy and they get a few games out of him. It's just a player who seems to have fallen out with Zinedine Zidane. Zidane just didn't like his attitude, didn't like his fight, yeah. whatever it might be. Um, it, it, it's just a strange situation that you have a basically fully fit, ready-to-go world-class player who hasn't played in a very long time, is well-rested, and probably... Somewhat hungry, at least somewhat hungry, to prove that this was just a strange outlier and not necessarily his fault. So I just think the kind of stars are aligning for him to return to Tottenham, hit the ground running, and be very successful. I I could very well be wrong, and if so, I expect to hear about it. But I, I think this result was very good for Tottenham, and I have a feeling more good results are going to follow. I would agree there, but I would couch that uh, Bale statement in that he's not going to play 50 games a season. He's this is uh, true. Given his record... Uh, I think the your your theory of rotation is a wise one. All right, all right. I'll take I'll take wise theories any day of the week. I will take <laughs> some Bundesliga and a little bit of Serie A, but first I will take today's sponsor, Artifact. We've talked about Artifact before. We're going to talk about them again. Artifact sets you up with one of their professional interviewers to capture stories about the important people or things in life. Uh, it's basically like your favorite podcast about about whatever you want. Uh, so you could schedule one for say it's a parent's anniversary or your anniversary, birth of a child. That's what I did. Uh, there are other opportunities there. There, but you're basically creating a podcast for posterity uh, about the present moment. Yes, and uh, not just uh, not, it's not some ramshackle thing they're doing nah. here, Taylor. Professional interviewers are capturing these stories about the important uh, events, people, or places in your life. Mm. It's like your favorite podcast, but it's about you. Yeah. Oh my gosh! If you're an egocentric person, you would love that. But even if you're not, I think this is really a really really good concept because. You know, you can have family photo albums, you can have that kind of thing, but Mm -hmm. if you love podcasts, and you probably do love podcasts because you're listening to a podcast, and I've said podcasts too many times in that sentence, then you'll love this artifact as well, wouldn't you? 
podcast. I'll podcast. add to it. Um, I will say also if you're a person who loves uh, steps, specifically three steps, they've got you covered there as well. Uh, what you can do, step one, go to heyartifact.com. Tell them a few basic things about what you want, what you want the artifact to be about, the kind of theme you're going for or why you're doing it. Step two, you answer a few pre-interview questions. You schedule the interview. It doesn't take very long. It takes a few minutes at most. And then the interview lasts about 30 minutes long. It's easy. Uh, they basically make contact with the people that you've asked them to make contact. If you're doing it yourself, then they'll make contact with you. Uh, but then their professional editors, sound engineers take care of all the edits and the final product. So it sounds professional. It sounds, I think we've said before, like a kind of This American Life episode is what it ends up, the vibe ends up being. Uh, so you could check out some of those examples uh, at heyartifact.com slash Daryl to hear about Daryl's uh, diagnosis and treatment for his cancer. You can hear heyartifact.com slash TSS to hear the origin story of the Total Soccer Show. Or you can get one of your own, and you can get one of your own with $40 off by using the code TSS. Just go to heyartifact.com. When you're ready to schedule yours, use the promo code TSS to get $40 off. One more time, heyartifact.com slash TSS. To hear our story, heyartifact.com, and then use the code TSS to get $40 off. A little confusing, but I think our our listeners can handle it. Thank you very (laughs) much to Artifact for sponsoring this episode. Ryan, let's go to Germany, shall we? Let's talk Dortmund Gladbach. I will gladly go to Germany because we're going to go to the Westfalenstadion mm-hmm. where there were nearly 10,000 fans. Am I yeah, not Yeah, there were. Yeah, it, Which fans. I kind of forgot was going to be happening. Manuel Veit had mentioned that. And yet when I like when I turned on this, the feed, I thought like, oh, they've got the cutouts there. And then the cutouts were moving. And I was like, well, that's a new level of technology. And then I realized those cutouts <laughs> were people. They were people. They were fans. Or as they call them in Deutschland, fans. <laughs> Fins, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good. Um, and I think also good is that Dortmund have the youngest squad since kindergarten? <laughs> I think so, yeah. They are very, very young indeed. Uh, two 17-year-olds combining for the first goal, two 20-year-olds combining mm-hmm. for the third goal. Do you want to talk about those? Uh, that first goal, maybe the goal scorer? Maybe the, uh, I want to assistant? sing about it, if that's what you mean. Uh, yes. Have you prepared a song? I'd like I, to hear I really it. should have. Uh, but mostly I'm just very happy about this goal. Yes, Raina, it's Jude, got it's Jude, me on my knees. Raina. That was a Yours was better. Song. Yours was better. That was perfect. Well done, sir. Uh, the first goal for people who missed it, Jude Bellingham, uh, England, 17-year-old, plays in Gio Reyna, uh, America's Future, 17-year-old, uh, or current 17-year-old America's Future, there we go, uh, who scores, as I said earlier, with a 7% likelihood, but he ends up scoring all the same. And it's a great goal. It's an exciting moment. I think Overall, though, what I was most excited about is that Gio Reyna does not look like a 17-year-old, and he no longer, to me, looks like a sort of player who has come in, like, started training with the first team, is getting minutes, is very good, but is sort of figuring it out. He he felt like much more of an established professional in this game. Maybe that's just, like, me with uh, – because I didn't watch this live. I watched this knowing the result. So maybe that's part of it, but I felt like his on-the-ball performance, his passing vision, that he was trying stuff but not trying too much. Even just little things like when he would get fouled, getting up and having words with the referee, or when his teammate would get fouled, going over and sort of slowing things down but talking to the ref and having a little bit of an exchange. Just those moments felt more like a settled professional than a youngster who's like quietly going about their business and hoping that they don't stand out in the wrong way. 
I agree. I can imagine if you talk to a, a German fan about it, be yeah, he, he's seventeen. So what? Yeah, he's, he's, he's very good. <laughs> right. And imagine being Giorena and you're playing in that little pocket behind. It, it was sort of a three-four-one-two here, playing behind Sancho, playing behind Erling Haaland. You've got the service coming from uh, Jubellingham as well. You've got Thorgenazar on the left. You've got mm. Emre Chan providing a lot of excellent service in this game. He was very good. He was all over the place from the right center back position. Like yeah. theoretically, that was Pretty another much, one. Yeah, yeah. of a, a, a back three um, and. He's, he was getting up there all the time, and I think he put the cross in for that first goal, if I'm not mistaken. Um, yeah, that, that's good. a good position for Reina to be in, to have mm-hmm. that kind of support system around you and to be that sort of number 10 in that, in, in that Borussia Dortmund team. He, he's, he's obviously earned it, and it's very special, isn't it? Yeah, certainly. And, and I think it's, it's special for the reasons I already mentioned. It's special because it sort of comes at a time when Gladbach had started to dominate the game a bit more. Their pressing is working. Dortmund are kind of struggling to play cohesively out of the back. It's a little bit more kicking the ball long or trying to play and getting caught in possession. Gio Reyna does get caught a couple times in this sequence, but it felt like for the moment, ooh, Gladbach are starting to get dominant. They're starting to figure out this team. And so then when Dortmund are able to find a way through, and it is sort of a combination of of good finishing and sort of a lucky bounce or two, but then also good positioning, good awareness. It's kind of what you need in that moment. And then from then on, Dortmund really do have control of the game. So I think even that made me really happy. And then my final thing that made me happy, we're going to continue with this streak, is that you mentioned that he's playing as the number 10 uh, Reyna was in a kind of 3-4-1-2 but I saw a lot of times him going over and playing like left midfield. I saw mm-hmm. him interchanging with Jaden Sancho when Jaden Sancho would come more central. And, I, and, and again, that spoke volumes to me of his ability to read the situation and adapt to it. It wasn't that like, but this is where I'm supposed to stand. You need to stand somewhere else. It was an awareness of the system and the kind of fluctuations within it and that he was able to kind of just handle that role with it, look very good throughout. Again, made me very, very happy that he has the footballing IQ to be able to handle such an intricate system. Yeah, and very, very exciting stuff. And he's obviously got a lot of freedom there as well. And can I say about Bruce Dortmund in general, they are incredible to watch at the moment. That third goal, which was mm-hmm. a break from a Gladbach corner. Yeah. How that was so quick that happened yeah. in a flash we've got the the corner comes in and sort of sancho picks it up i think he runs about 146 miles an hour yeah. down down the field and sort of threads the ball for harlan to, to be yeah to be able to run that fast and to put that kind of perfect weighting on that little through ball for harland that's incredibly skillful yes. and also let's not forget that harland was not only keeping up with uh, with sancho running there he's overtaking him and he's nine feet tall we're gonna to talk see about someone that. To see someone that big have that much pace running up the field and to get onto that ball and to have that finish there, that was a breathtaking bit of soccer. He's too tall, right? Like, Erling Haaland should not be that tall and that quick. It's just, he's so tall and so long legged that, like, I think, like, one of his strides is probably three of Jaden Sancho's. And that's, (laughs) I think, a big reason why he's able to close that gap. But then. He's too tall in that he goes to celebrate with Jaden Sancho and he tries to do like you can tell he wants to do like I'm going to jump in your arms and then I think realizes I'm too big for that I will knock you over so he does this weird like uh, I think it's like uh, Lindsay from Arrested Development's chicken dance if that <laughs> if that rings a bell of like it's out it's like feet out to the side and it's a weird like oh I have to adjust because I'm so much bigger than you that I have to like go lower and make sure that I stay at like eye level because otherwise I will knock you over and maybe kill you mm. so I, I think it was his height in the celebration and his height in that run both kind of mesmerizing but as you said Jaden Sancho's speed and breakaway speed while controlling the ball also pretty mesmerizing because this is one of those goals 
Happens in the 77th minute. If you go to it, you will see in the 77th minute, Gladbach is, as Ryan said, getting ready to take a corner. Dortmund ready to defend that corner. And then within, what, like 12 seconds, it's in the back of the net, 120 yards down the field. Yeah. It, it, it's that moment of like, oh, they must have this wrong. The minute must be wrong. Or it must be Gladbach who scored. Maybe this finished 2-1 to one and I just read it wrong. Nope. It's Dortmund being lightning fast on that counterattack. And it was another reminder of maybe why certain clubs are interested in Jaden Sancho. Because he has that pace, but has that control, has the decision making. And you're absolutely right. The way he weights that pass perfectly, and it is sort of also a like disguise pass because you expect maybe he's going to hold it, cut inside, mm-hmm. and get a shot off, or maybe he's going to go for the crossfield pass to like an onrushing right-sided player, and instead puts it perfectly in stride for Erling Holland, who still hits left-footed, supposed to go across his body. It's a lovely finish, but the entire sequence was just tremendous. Yeah, Timo Werner would have uh, taken it alone, and maybe <laughs> bumped into a defender. That's all I'm saying. That's probably true. That's probably true. So, uh, Dortmund, uh, with the, with the win, and it does, does feel like those two, along with Leipzig, will sort of be the ones who kind of round out that top four alongside Bayern Munich. So to get the win, uh, and an emphatic win at that, I'm gonna assume Dortmund fans are pretty pleased. I'm gonna assume Juve fans are pleased with their 3-0 win, though I don't know if they will see it as quite so dramatic since they're sort of used to winning, but it is still a big win, and it's a big win that features an American, Ryan Bailey. And I want you to talk all about how great the American was. He was no great, pressure. Taylor. Yeah, go on. What do you want to say about him? <laughs> Weston McKinney uh, obviously is uh, in Andre Pirlo's, very much in Andre yep. Pirlo's plans. And Andre Pirlo's first uh, game here, uh, a 3-0 win, as we say. And yep. so, so what, 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 was, what was your takeaway? Well, so I was pretty positive about this. I talked uh, to Grant Wall on his podcast about this a little bit, just that it felt like this was Weston McKinney doing a, a pretty passable Gattuso impression, that mm. he was being physical in the midfield. Uh, he launches a counterattack. When Ronaldo hits the, the underside of the crossbar, it's because Weston McKinney has gone in for an aggressive slide tackle, won it, and the tackle itself is one of those like tackle passes that then leads to the counter. And I saw him doing good work there. My view was that I thought his passing was was pretty simple, but that's maybe what, what was being asked of him. Uh, I messaged Daryl. Uh, he had some concerns about Weston McKinney's passing and so, sort of that he tried maybe one or two times to do too much, but simultaneously enjoyed a lot of what he saw from Weston McKinney. He said... Um, I'm te- he texted me this this morning as we were recording. I'm texting you this to make sure there's not an accidental Daryl thought McKinney was bad narrative on the weekend review. <laughs> uh, I really liked uh, that he was disciplined at staying in a two with Rabio, which seemed really important because everyone else, Ramsey, Ronaldo, uh, Kulusevsky, uh, allowed, was allowed to float and be fluid. So that partnership was very good. But I think where he's coming from with his don't say that I just said negative things was because he did correctly point out that uh, McKinney plays the entire game, but in the 78th minute, Juan Cuadrado, who's playing as a right wing back, comes out. Bentoncourt comes on. Bentoncourt, who we expect will probably be the starter in that central midfield. He goes to that spot. Weston McKinney goes to right wing back. And maybe that is a little bit of an insight as to where he'll be this season of sometimes in central midfield, sometimes at right wing back, which is what we saw from Schalke. So that is a little bit of a disappointment that maybe we'll still see him in a multiple or in a variety of positions. But I would then argue that playing a variety of positions for Juventus slightly different than playing a variety of positions for this iteration of Schalke. Yeah, I would agree. And I think yeah, very positive steps being taken here. And I, that's interesting you say about the freedom. Uh, that was going to be my observation of Ramsey, who does operate with quite a bit of freedom there and does do very well at finding the space to receive the ball. And I suppose that's credit to the two players behind him. 
Yeah, exactly. So, uh, Weston McKinney, Ballon d'Or winner. We've, assa- we've established that now. It's a weird, <laughs> it's a weird, weird team, uh, this UVA team with McKinney and Rabio as your two sort of starting in the whole midfielders, then Aaron Ramsey ahead of them. We all saw that coming. Frabotta, uh, starts at left wing back again. Yeah. Not necessarily a thing we expected when you have, say, Douglas Costa on the bench, when Artur hasn't even come in, when DeShilio and Bentoncourt are also on the bench. I guess you may have depth, is I guess what I'm saying. And I think they will be quite good, but I'm excited that they're going to be quite good with a Weston McKinney who looks motivated and like he has sort of been brought into the squad fully and seems to be thriving in it. So a happy thing for U.S. fans. I, th- I would say happy weekend overall with Reina scoring, Josh Sargent playing, even if we're to Rem- didn't have a great weekend. Uh, Christian Pulisic obviously doesn't get any minutes for Chelsea. He's still recovering, but Tyler Adams does. So strong minutes for Americans this weekend. Ryan, speaking of this weekend, anything else you would like to mention from it? Uh, I think we've done a tremendous job of getting through all this, Taylor, and I didn't even once mention uh, Cock coming against Ariola in that Leeds game, and I'm very proud of myself for that. <laughs> well, I do appreciate that, Ryan. I appreciate all things you do. Uh, you will be back, I'm assuming, next Monday to do another weekend review with me, if that works for you. If I didn't get fired for that last comment, then yes, I'd love to. Uh, yeah, you did not. I've heard back. Okay, I was I was checking with the judges. The judges say you're still in. So there <laughs> well, we go. There was a really awkward silence there when I was wondering if you were going to do it. Oh, phew. I will not. But what I will do is say, Ryan Bailey, thank you very much for taking all the time to talk about all the games from this past weekend. Always a pleasure, never a chore.